what is with the Dream TX moniker? Was that kind of mashing the Trailhead TX or Trailhead uh, X? It, or so it's I now know it's it's the Trailblazer Experience. Oh god. Okay. Well, okay. Trailblazer and, Experience. And let's let's have this be the show now. So keep it. Yeah. Busy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Tra what was it? Trail Trailblazer Experience. Okay. That, so Dream yeah. TX is Trailblazer Experience. That, that makes sense. I've, I've been wondering yeah. what that was. I'm trying to figure it out. At first, I thought, oh, they're bringing Dreamforce to Texas. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that the Texas Dreaming crowd were really pleased to yeah. see that they they were kind of trending, but not really right. trending. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Oracle's moving to Texas, so. Oh, that's true. You know, yeah. maybe maybe Ellison will be like, hey, come on down, Benioff. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah. I, I, does Salesforce? They don't have a major. They don't have a tower in Texas, right? They've got towers everywhere. There's not one in Texas. They do have offices. I mean, they're they're here in town. I think there's I think there's one in Dallas. Yeah, well, a, I don't know if it's no, an official tower. I think it's got a no. Big name they are building a tower. I don't know what the progress was, but they had an office. They do have offices in downtown, but they were supposed to be either building or leasing a newly built building that was going to be the tower. I mean, you've got to be able to get a great deal right now, right? Yeah, I, I would lock in like a 15 year lease at this point. Yeah, I mean, with um all the Everyone working from home, you know, the, the office real estate has been crashing. So great time to yeah, get I mean, a tower. Maybe, maybe we can go in together and get a, we can maybe raise some funds and get a GDS tower. There you go. <laughs> we can do that. For just a whole yeah. floor at, at one of the, yeah. one of the high yeah. rises. Yeah. And at least get the, maybe the, our, our logo on the building here or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know. You, you, the building rights aren't that hard, hard, that hard to come by nowadays. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, well let's mention our guest, John. So our guest today is. Stefan Chandler Garcia. Did I get that right? That would be I think, correct. I think yes. I was, the last time I, I full name left. is he in trouble? Well, no, because I I, I, <laughs> I I think I didn't catch the the after he changed his name. I didn't get the the last time I I don't know we had him on. I didn't. I don't think I got his full new name in. So wanted to make yeah, sure I got so that right. <laughs> I d growing up, I I have no idea where the name Stefan come from. Being up obviously growing up in California, as it sounds like I grew up uh, in California. Um, <laughs> no one like. No one knew this name, Stefan. So every teacher I'd ever have would read like the first three letters and be like, oh, okay, Stephen, Stephen, oh, Stephen, Stephen, yeah. constantly. I had the one history teacher that was always, oh, is, is Stephanie Garcia here? <laughs> and where you just get the eye roll. And so nowadays I'll just answer to anything yeah. at this point. In England, everyone says St Stefan. Yeah. Okay. Because that's what, what's common there. So I, I usually will just nod my head and just say, yep, what, what's, what's going on? Yeah. I remember that because I asked you, how do you pronounce your name? And that was your response was just whatever. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> and I felt bad because I wanted to pronounce your name correct because I have a last name that's not easy to pronounce. And I've lived in non-Spanish speaking areas and they butchered it like crazy. But so I yeah. get it. But yeah. Yeah. Well, it just yeah. It, at, at some point, just it's, yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> Right. Well, um, Stephanie, you want to start with maybe, so you had a, at least one session yesterday, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I had a, one of the sessions, uh, at, at dream TX and then a couple of the demos I contributed to, um, around. So my, my session that I, I participated in was mostly based around sort of Salesforce integrating across things like functions using a lot of the new technology around lightning web components and some of the off platform capabilities. And then, looking at how we can then bring Heroku into the mix and how to communicate with Heroku from Salesforce. That um, was the demo with the cars, right? That, that was the, yeah. yeah, I do remember seeing that one. Yeah. You'd seen a lot of e-cars yesterday. So that's sort of the new sample app that we built um, as a team and released a, a, a couple of months ago, I think it was. Um, 
curious but really about trying that. to show oh sorry how to, how to bring it all together no go for it yeah i was gonna say i was curious about the choice of technology that was used was that mainly meant to to showcase kind of showing the full end-to-end including integrating with external services because the way the the site was working i was like well couldn't you have just stood up a community and have everyone go through the community yeah i think more so it, we were trying to show how like most organizations who are innovating in these types of technologies have a bit of something everywhere. Like everyone wants a progressive web app at the moment because a, a PWA is what's cool to have as a, as a developer, as a company. So you want to be able to work with those technologies. Mm-hmm. We then want to demonstrate how you can still work with that stuff as well as Salesforce. Gotcha. And not just really being stuck into everything has to be Salesforce. It's like, we've got all these offerings, we've got all these products and technology. How can we bring that all together in, in sort of a single vision? I, I, if we have time, I, I actually would like to drill down on that whole, uh, why are PWA so popular? Yeah. Um, um, performance. I mean... Well, I, okay. Because uh, the, the thing is, like, my experience with them as a user is they're generally pretty crappy. Like, I think... I'm not going to name any names, but like I, my, yeah. my phone carrier, for example, like when you have to log in to, you know, access your account and all that, it's, I'm pretty sure it's a PWA and it's just, it's just terrible. I mean, the UI is terrible. They just didn't, it's, and it's one of those things that, you know, you can do them well, you can do them poorly. I yeah. just see so many yeah, poor exactly. ones, but I'll, I'll take an example of a, a really good one. I recently switched the software I used to like track all my brewing. Um, and I use this one called Brewfather now, and it's, it's definitely a PWA because, um, yeah. When you like, if if you're you know using your desktop browser, um, it's you know you get a, a different layout, but you can tell it's the, yeah. really the same app that when you because um, and, and in fact you install the app like on the on your phone through the app store, but you can tell mm-hmm. it's just it's just a, a PWA. It's just like going. I don't know if it's I guess it's probably served directly from their website, you know, real time or I guess or over the web. Um, but it's done really well. I mean, it's it's not like super native feeling and looking, but it just works really well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one yeah, app. It's like it's one code it, base. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sh- they're meant to be super slim and lightweight where they can be, so that you don't have all of the extra bits and pieces running in the background. Obviously, a big part of it is is sort of pushing down the service workers so that as the app is loading, you've sort of almost preloaded as much content as possible into the browser. I mean, sort of the same principle as like static site generators, which are like also all the craze at the moment. I mean, I'm not sure if you've played around with things like Gatsby or Hugo or any of those. I've done Jekyll for, more, but yeah. 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 It's, it's still, it's, it's sort of almost like front loading as much as possible so that when you're browsing an app, viewing the website, your browser's not having to do as much of the work as it necessarily would be. In, in most cases. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, I mean, I'm curious, just the, the Heroku aspect of this, like, you know, what this, and again, this, this vision Salesforce has for like, hey, obviously we have all these clouds and you can do all this stuff on our clouds, but, you know, you probably are you know, also going to have, you know, some progressive web app you, you have, or you've got these other systems and, you know, you want to integrate them and, you know, you have your web hooks and all this kind of stuff. Um, what is... When when Salesforce, you know, they obviously you know use Heroku as um, as kind of the go to off platform, uh, you know, what do you what would you consider that like a, a runtime or a SaaS or not a SaaS but yeah, like a it's, plat- it's a pass, it's a pass, pass technically yeah. like yeah. Um, what what particular Heroku like products I guess are they are they using for that? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, 
Just anything? So, well, so just taking a step back on Heroku for a second, like I think a lot of people forget um, as as acquisitions are in the news a lot at the moment, Heroku was an acquisition of Salesforce. I don't know. Was, is, has it been 10 years since like Heroku it. was acquired? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I was reading a thread on Twitter about this. One of the original founders was was tweeting about sort of the changes that Heroku went through over time through the acquisition. I remember and that. Yeah. I, that was recently. I did it. Yeah, it was yeah. really recently. Um, I didn't realize that when Salesforce acquired Heroku, it was Ruby only. Like you could build and deploy Ruby applications to the web, and that was that was Heroku. And thinking about how far it's come with things like build packs, all of the data services that are now offered, like it's it's pretty advanced in in that aspect, and continuing to be like one of the, the things that we talked about in the session was there's now sort of the, the Kafka streaming data connector for Postgres, so you can have your Postgres database fire change events via Kafka, like with with hardly any effort of putting those two things together. It's almost like a, a bolt on that you're installing into your application. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff like that, because like, like now that we have Lightning Web components all over the place, like you can subscribe to WebSockets for pulling data. Mm -hmm. You can you can fetch from them. You can bring in whatever you want from anywhere. So it's it's almost it, it, it pairs pretty well in that sense. Yeah, and it's also um, speaking of build packs, I, I think Heroku invented they created build packs and then open sourced it because it's you know the. Uh, a lot of other organizations have adopted build packs and it's, you know, it's an open source thing now. So there's like all kinds of, I'm trying to think of others that have, I'm, I, I don't know of any of that. I mean, I can't name them, but I know there's other like platforms as a service that are using build packs, that, that same technology. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. that's I mean, actually a really kind of big open source thing that came out of Heroku. Well, if you, if you think 10 years ago, like, okay, I'm going to build this application and just deploy it into a container and host it on the web, and then I'm going to scale it up and down when I need to. Like that's what web technology has become, yeah. Recently, but that's something that Heroku was doing that long ago. That's funny because now that you know, now that functions have become such a big thing. Like I've heard people yeah. say that Salesforce was kind of uh, or serverless, I guess, which yeah, is serverless, which are highly related. Um, three or four years ago, I've heard people say, "Oh, you know, Salesforce was the was the OG." serverless and, and kind of in a way i guess you know you could put your your visual force and your your apex or whatever and you don't you know that's so that tied into the false cloud messaging <laughs> kind of um oh, where was i going with that um i don't know oh uh, I, you know i guess heroku though that that i mean they were it really if you want to be fair i think they were the kind of og serverless right? were they because they yeah. they were yeah. built on top of amazon right well, well, sure. I mean, someone, well, that's the thing with serverless. I mean, it, someone's running a server somewhere. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. you don't have necessarily one dedicated to you. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Um, someone's going to run your service on some server or servers, and you don't have to know or care about that. Yeah. I mean, what, when, when was, when was the, the everything has to be microservices boom, like four or five years ago? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe even, even yeah. sooner than maybe that. And sooner, everyone I think was, it was like a three starting write functions. Yeah. But sort of like when Lambda started, Lambda started to become prevalent. You have all of the Azure functions stuff. Like yeah. it's, it, everything was starting to go that way anyways. And I, I, I can't say to how widely it's been adopted because you have to be organized incredibly well as a company to have everything in microservices, which a lot of companies I know just aren't. Yeah. Um, well, that's where MuleSoft comes in to save the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is, it has been funny to see the pendulum swing back from microservices. I mean, because, yeah. you know, I don't know, you got all the Netflixes, right. That are, that are blogging about how, you know, everything they do is microservices. And of course, you know, every 
you know, you have all these small and medium-sized companies that, that go out and they're like, oh, let's re-architect everything with microservices, and they realize that it makes no sense for them. And in fact, you know, more monolithic, you know, our, uh, application architectures are really suitable for, unless you're a, really a giant company, um, you know, the monoliths, there's a lot of advantages to monoliths, and there's a lot of disadvantages to microservices. And What's unless, a double-edged sword? I mean, yeah, because yeah. once you go microservices and you get a fair amount of them, then you have to catalog and somehow register them so that they're accessible to certain people and mm-hmm. and maintain them. And now you've got the issue of propagating updates or at least notifying of updates because they're they're self-contained containers. What happens when you change them and it breaks something else? I mean, it's just and, managing all that. Just yeah. And you really, I mean, this conversation always goes back to Conway's law, which is that your application architecture will 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 mirror your organizational architecture. And so if you are a giant company with all these different business units and, and, you know, they're all creating these different services and things and, and you want to, you know, you need to be able to consume these things across, you know, business organization units, then microservices might make sense. But, you know, if you're a 300 person company and your engineering team is, is, you know, 20 or 30 people, um, you probably don't need microservices. You probably just need a monolithic application. Um, yeah, that's going to just serve you much better. You're, you're with microservices. Sometimes you're, you're, you're solving a problem that you don't have, which creates more kind of just accidental complexity. Yeah. Do you know, one of the um, coolest things I've seen come out of MuleSoft in the last year or two is this, their API hub that you can create mm-hmm. as a company that does run to John's point earlier on a Salesforce community. And so you can start then grouping and creating API libraries internally that you can grant access to users to via the community. So it's almost like running a community for all of your endpoints yeah. and all of your API specifications that are coming out of MuleSoft. And I think that's sort of a, a really good direction that that product's gone over over time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's where that, yeah, that, that whole API library and, and just the kind of the governance that you can have. I mean, I think that's something because, you know, when you look at just like core integration platforms, I mean, they're kind of a commodity in a way. I mean, there's a lot of them. And then, you know, of course, the commercial ones and then there's the open source ones and whatever. And so I think that's one of those things that uh, a MuleSoft can can set itself apart, really, is with, you know, all this. And it's, I think it's, again, it's bigger organizations, but not necessarily. I mean, I can even see smaller organizations that could benefit from that because everyone's creating integrations nowadays. Everyone's, everyone's you know. Either they're you know they have vendor applications that are exposing APIs or they're building APIs internally, and then it's like okay, well, how do we? It goes. You know, it reminds me. Of, what was the what was the soap? Was it UDDI? What was the service that was like going to be like the directory of all the soap services? You guess, I think it was, I, I think it was UDDI. I could be wrong, but of course that ended up being a spectacular failure. Um, but I, I see you know things like what Milsoft's doing out they're kind of doing it right it's it's actually you know you need to have a directory of services that are available mm-hmm. because number one like it, you don't want to duplicate effort if someone's already built something like just reuse it uh, but also you know you have to have governance around these things and you have to know like who's responsible for them and what you know um, what updates they're doing and you know how do you manage version compatibility and all that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. you know that's something if Milsoft can solve that pretty well i mean that's yeah. that's where they really kind of earn their their salary at that point so they do yeah, have some tooling time. around that where you can kind of proxy some of those services to get kind of more of a consistent interface and things. So that's true. And of course they have that um, one thing that I was, always thought was kind of cool is that um, you can, when you're, when you're stubbing out an API or building something new, you can, you can kind of, well, you can't stub it out basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that makes it really easy. So you kind of write your, write it in RAML or, or uh, what's the, what's the uh, um, open API or whatever it's it is. It's not YAML, yeah. is it? 
No, it's they. <laughs> they, they no. What is YAML? Well, you probably can't actually open it. Isn't um, what's that? What is YAML uh, was the original one? Wasn't yeah, but it? what is the new swagger called? It's Open API, right? Through Open API yeah. three. So that's yeah, I think yeah, that is YAML. I think it is. So, Open API 3.0. So yeah, you describe your service in YAML with Open API. But either one, I, th- I think, and, and, and as far as I know, MuleSoft supports RAML and YAML, all, all the all the AMLs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of cool. You can like you know kind of describe what service you want, and then you can just like you know kind of do this auto mocking thing, and then people can start you know um, you know hooking up whether it's tests or they can start consuming it. Maybe just serving up fake answers, but at least it allows other teams to be able to start consuming that and, and get down the road. And then later you can go fill, you can go backfill that API with an actual implementation that, you know, connects to the real databases or does the real things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, obviously I haven't worked for Salesforce forever. I've only been uh, maybe a couple of years now, almost working for Salesforce, but I ran a, a consulting firm in the UK for a couple of years where we did government consulting and you can imagine how mundane that can be in a lot of instances and whenever we do local government work like if we needed access to an endpoint for anything there were 10 different versions that someone had written in the back of the office each one with different sets of fields in them and every time someone needed a new field here's a new api here's a new way to authenticate it whatever is the the current way of of writing the authentication protocols and it's just constantly mm. duplicating the same work over and over again because there's no visibility. Maybe they needed a center of excellence. <laughs> Maybe. Have <laughs> you ever, you guys either ever worked with a center of excellence? Yes. You have? Yeah. Oh, just, uh, a that's... couple of them, yeah, for two different enterprises. <laughs> wow. Well, but, yeah. Those yeah. just, I, I guess you can do those well. I mean, I've heard of people doing them, but I, I think that's more, more often than not one of those things that. It's, it's, I remember it was one of the biggest wastes of time. Yeah. They flew us all out to New York on this one instance, this one example. And I think we were all in a room for about a couple of hours and we spent most of that trying to figure out what the, how to market the, the, the project to the company. Oh, that's so yeah. naming and, and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, why am I here in New York with all these really expensive people talking about how we're going to market the project to the company? It's, yeah. it's definitely well, that, that's an important. That's actually important, especially at a big company. Like you have to. We we're market. still trying to figure out. We were trying. What we were trying to do, we were supposed to be doing, was consolidating all these uh, Salesforce orgs that we had into one, either one or two master orgs, yeah. and whether or not that was going to work. And that's why I thought I was there as being the the Salesforce expert. Yeah, but no, but I was. The, the, the thing is, like, especially when you're working in an organization big enough to have a circle of success, your job is to build something and sell it into each business unit because the budget for that is coming from their cost centers. And so you have to justify funding of the project from each of those parts of the business, which is hard and shouldn't be like a developer's responsibility, but ends up being part of that process of getting funding for projects and for enhancements. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think centers of excellence, it, they, 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 they're important and they can be done well but I just, one of those things, just like something like Six Sigma, you just, you see it yeah. not done well or abused by That's such people. a big ship. And you can, you can feel yeah. the pain of trying to turn that ship when you're yeah. kind of going through those exercises. Yeah. Anyway, well, yeah, big time. let's, let's get back to the, uh, I don't know, this, I guess this message Salesforce has with. Now you had functions in that demo, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I was primarily responsible for the functions work. So, so rolling back onto e-cars, like. The eCars app is all on GitHub, bar the functions, pieces of it, um, because you can't 
just install the functions into an org at the moment. And all the sample apps are like built to just spin up a scratch org and deploy it. And so if you run through installing the app, like you get all of the uh, Heroku apps that we've built, the PWA, you get the MQTT server, the Kafka instance, like it's all in there. And so that you can go, anyone can go and check out now. Now the function stuff was more of an experiment as to see, okay, how can we take functions and apply them into these real world scenarios? Um, a little bit more than just PDF generation, like we're seeing in a lot of demos at the moment, because PDF generation is a good go-to, sometimes can be quite compute intensive. There's always a library for doing it, but there are many other use cases that that functions make sense. Um, and and I, had, I hadn't got been too hands-on with functions yet personally until preparing for this. I'd, I played around with them a little bit in some of the work that we were doing, but not actually trying to build something, deploy it and run it as part of like sort of an end-to-end -end solution. Um, and it was definitely really cool, but uh, I'd done a lot with Lambda in the past, a, a lot around things like, like, what do you, what do you go to Lambda for image uploading and processing, um, a lot of OCR stuff. Mm, so you can yeah. push out hit endpoints there. I do a lot of chaining in Lam in Lambda. So like if I need to call a few different endpoints to enrich some data, that's easier to do in, in the function, um, than trying to do on Salesforce or in, in, in an app. Um, and so, like, how can you, like, what kind of use cases can you then now bring to Salesforce if you were to say you have an, an entire gateway to deploying functions within the Salesforce world? Like, what, what would you do? What could you do? Yeah. Quite easily. Um, it, it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So I, I saw that there, so out, you know, out of the gate, there will be, um, what is it, Python and Java? Is that what they said? Uh, no, uh, JavaScript, JavaScript, TypeScript, and Java are, are the current, obviously, forward-looking statement. Right. Any of this could, could change okay. over time as the product evolves. So, and, and, so not Apex yet, although I, I think Apex, is, they've, it's always been part of the public roadmap for it. I mean, I'll say that. You don't have to. I, I've seen them. Have, I've, I feel like they've always mentioned Apex as being something that... Um, but I, I can also see how that, that would be a big challenge. Just, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not that I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of where Apex is in the roadmap at the moment. But okay. when, when playing around with it in the, in the pilot, I, I focus mainly on writing things in JavaScript and TypeScript. I mean, That's I don't, honestly, I don't know why you'd want to. I mean, if you're off the platform already, essentially, you know, you're off the the transactional Apex platform. Like, I'm not sure why you'd, unless that was. Well, here's here's the use case. You're a, you're a Salesforce developer, and yeah. you learned you you know that's that's. That's the type of developer you are. You mean you know, before Salesforce, you did not do any development, and that's the language you know is Apex. Yeah. So that to me is like the use case of there. Otherwise, you know, yeah, it seems like a, another thing. But anyway, um, I'm curious. So why do you think Salesforce decided? Hey, even though you can, you know, AWS has functions. I don't know if Heroku does Heroku have a functions product? Not not in not in okay. in any sense. This but, you this know, is it in that in that sense. Gotcha. I guess you would say. Okay. So GPC, Azure functions, and they've all got this. So when Salesforce said, "Hey, well, why don't we provide a function as a service?" Um, what what is it when when what is it about the Salesforce function product that is you know that's kind of does it have a tie in or what's kind of unique about it that makes that makes it attractive for Salesforce customers? Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, does it have a tie-in? Like, does it tie-in? Does it have some kind of, like, native tie-in to your org or, like, an API access to your to your data or yeah. something? Okay. Yeah, so so uh, in its current state, um, you deploy your function, 
um, and it's 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 in, a, in a, it's in a Docker container. And so your function's deployed. You then bind it to your org, and so your function is then bound to your org, and you can just call it from Apex. And so it's literally like uh, function dot get oh, pass okay. in the name okay. and just invoke your function. So there's an there'll be an API in Apex to call your functions. Yeah, yeah, okay, yep. and, okay. And you can call them synchronously or asynchronously at the moment. I imagine, oh. and you'll get a callback. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if so, if you're invoking it asynchronously, we, and it, this is this is you can see this in in there are two of the demos from yesterday that include this. Um, you just take your function, you pass in your function, and you pass it the payload, your callback, and Apex, and then whatever the response back will will push into your callback, and you can do some more processing there. Yeah, I mean, and, there, and there's just a ton of use cases for that because you know yeah. one thing that yeah. we we kind of is a is a always a theme is like okay, Apex, you know, it's it's good for what it is, which is you know this. Um, kind of, you know, database triggering language that's expanded somewhat, but still, you know, that's it, that's kind of its role. Whereas there's so many things you might want to do that require that there's you know there's some Java library for, or there's a Ruby yeah. or a Python library for, or of course JavaScript now, you know, which runs the world. Um, you know, but you don't really necessarily have access to those directly from Apex. Mm -hmm. But this is a yeah. way that you could, you know, and to your point, like PDF, like you know, what's the what's the popular one? iText? I think is the popular PDF generation library. Um, it's in Java. That's what Salesforce uses. Is it iText? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. And so, you know, but yeah, you, know, you might want access to the to the raw iText, right? For the yeah. full for yeah, the it's an older version. It is an older version. Why you can't do right. certain things. Yeah. 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 Um I so so when going through this, I was like, okay, everyone was throwing around things like, okay, what about QR code generation? That there's there's something that there's obviously gonna be about a million libraries for we can just install into a function. Um uh, I I use SendGrid a lot in and outside mm. of Salesforce. Yep. Um, cause I think send SendGrid is just a great like email platform that's gone far beyond transactional email in the last couple of years. They were, uh, I think Twilio acquired them about a year ago. Mm. Um, and they've just really invested into, into how it works. Like you can have marketing define your email templates. And then when you're calling the, the API for SendGrid, just pass in, um, anything that you want into the callout in the payload. So you can pass out all of your merge fields, any content that you want to push into the email and send these like super rich emails from SendGrid. Um, and so, so in this example, in a single function, I'm generating a QR code, uploading it to Cloudinary, and then passing that all in the body to an email in SendGrid. And I could just install all three of those packages, yeah. right? A couple of lines of JavaScript and... I now have super personalized content that I can send out from a function. Yep. And, and, you know, another just aspect of, of Salesforce providing this service. And I know this is, you know, I don't know. It's not, it's any kind of technically strong argument, but just, it's so pragmatic is that if I can just, if, you know, cause I do a lot of client work, right. I work for a consulting company and just to be able to tell the client, Oh yeah, we can do all, we can piece all these things together and bring in all this best of breed email things and whatever, and, and document generation. And, all within your current sales, you know, you know, Salesforce will bill you for it. You don't have, we don't have to go sign You don't have to sign up with some other service. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's yeah. just, that's just always easier. It's just, you know, path of least resistance. Right. I mean, if, if you've, if you've written a function anywhere, if you've written services in JavaScript or in Java, obviously like it's super quick and easy to get started with functions. Like it's going to be great yeah. forward looking. It's going to be great once everyone can start getting their, their hands on them. Um, and just just being able to jump in and run with them was was really cool. Yeah, 
Do we know how accessible they're going to be to everyone in terms of licensing? No idea. I'm the last person you want to speak to on pricing availability, yeah. any I, of that. I think this would be a great way, uh, opportunity for Salesforce to step into consumption-based billing more instead of, you know, seat-based billing. I, I would like to see that as well. Me too. I mean, yeah. I, 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 mean, mean, I certainly how, don't want them to give away the farm. Build. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's Heroku. I mean, Heroku's all consumption-based for the yeah. most part, right? I mean, you can spin up and spin down and, you know, a, a lot of auto-scaling type of thing and so yeah, I, I would, I would, if that that would be nice, especially for communities. Not to get off topic, but I mean, we have so many clients that you know they're trying to grow a community, so they can't yeah. go and invest ten thousand licenses all up front yeah. when they're trying to build it out. So having some, some kind of consumption based license would be ideal for them to scale that up and down. Well, you're that's a yeah. That's not really related to functions, but I hear you. No, I I, I said it was unrelated, but I'm just saying in general on the topic of of changing the licensing schema to something a little more consumer consumption based. um, If I put if I put my sales hat on for when I work to pre-sales, there are different types of community licenses. So based there are volume based licenses for communities as well as login based licenses. So it might be contact contact your AE if for more information about the different license types available for communities. (laughs) (laughs) Just just don't reduce that ACV and you're fine. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Um, what else? Let's see. You want to talk about the the composer thing? I'm I'm still a little bit curious about that. This is is that what it's called? The MuleSoft yeah. composer. Well, so, so the MuleSoft composer is like um, I've I've not I've not played around with it yet personally, but it's like a WYSIWYG like like you would be integrating in something like Zapier where you you look up a look up a contact in Salesforce, push it over to another endpoint, but a a, a big portion of it will be a lot of pre-built endpoints that exist within the composer itself mm-hmm. um but obviously within within that nice user interface in salesforce um so but i i don't know a lot of detail about it really okay outside of some of those, I just, those top ideas i just saw some screenshots and it kind of reminded me of like if you can imagine f- um like flow for integration in a way kind yeah. of yeah it yeah, is the, 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 and I don't, the other part of that is the the automate stuff as well What's that? The f- the flow orchestrator, and all of these sort of that push towards sort of large larger scale automation. Hmm. Do you know anything about that, John? Mm-hmm. I don't either. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a, a lot of it was uh, talked about and announced at the keynote um, a couple of weeks ago. But the floor the flow orchestrator sort of lets you group actions and in this case a lot of instances flows into larger scale processes so that you can like hand off processes to different people within the organization sort of bring a lot of those um i don't know like so so say like employee onboarding the different types of forms that you need to fill out okay you filled out your your new hire form we're going to send a form off to it it then need to create a tech request hr need to create your profile here and sort of being able to pass around actions within the organization whereas instead of just having a flow that lives on a page and then writing all kinds of logic to then send someone else a task to do and it sort of and this, was, a, this was part of a MuleSoft product no 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 this is this is on the core platform okay so this would all replace kind of, this, it's all kind of grouped together would this replace the kind of standby action plans which i really don't like uh not necessarily i think action plans have their own place in like fsc mm-hmm. and all of those tools it is i mean I, how many times have we all written action plans from scratch really in creating t- lists of things for people to do, so I guess I guess in kind of a way, it's that kind of process. 
Yeah, pretty much all the time because no one likes to do it in tasks. They want it <laughs> either in a case or they want they want either some of them to be a task, some of them to be cases, some of them to be some other custom record. So it ends up getting rewritten. Yeah, yeah, I can I can tell you the amount of times I had to do that from yeah. from scratch. So is this starting to look like what people call BPM, which I'm ne I've never been 100 percent clear what what BPM is, but yeah, I think there's there's quite a um, a move towards those types of processes within companies, because that's what a, a lot of companies, large enterprise companies are used to BPM, and people want that finite control over the process. Um, uh, it's not currently part of the initial offering with the Flow Orchestrator stuff, but it, in a lot of BPM tools, you can go and track bottlenecks around processes. Mm. And so you can see that IT always takes an extra week that longer than they should to fill out those IT requests. I mean, and did so we really need a fancy tool process. to tell us that though? <laughs> <laughs> it's always IT. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to check this out cause that sounds pretty interesting. I did not, was not privy to that. So yeah. Yeah. So that's part of all of the new Einstein automate stuff that's now uh, going to be coming soon to the platform. So we, we mentioned open API earlier cause mm -hmm. of, uh, something that's a kind of that MuleSoft plays with but um on the on this developer blog i'm looking at salesforce they call out open api it says we continue to provide new apis and embrace standards most recently in the pilot for winter 21 we introduced open api 3.0 specs for some of the core rest mm -hmm. apis i guess that just means they're just they're publishing open api specs for just the, the existing apis yeah, yeah, and you can you can generate them as well for based on certain certain parameters that you need to go in and check to, to generate a spec for. Um, now it would be cool if if they continued on that path and do something like like let's say you've made some what is it called Apex REST I guess you've made your own REST services out of mm -hmm. Apex yeah. and just be able mm -hmm. to produce open API specs out of that. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, yeah, and then also to I implement an open API spec in Apex that would be cool as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I mean, do you, so, have either of you used external services very much? I know, I don't, I don't know how much flow you're doing, but um, external services let you take a spec and auto-generate an Apex class out of it. Okay. And so then you can then access that within things like flow, the declarative tools, yeah. to then call out from within those things. Of course, I'm now having, so then, I'm now having Wizzle to Apex PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. But I, I got to blame that mainly on Wizzle. Oh, yeah. Geez. Yeah, I got to the point where I was pretty much massaging the Wizzle before I imported it and then <laughs> massaging the code that was generated. Yeah. Uh, massaging the Wizzle. That's, yeah. that's, that's a candidate right there. <laughs> I think there's one of the trailhead, the, the super badges, the Apex one. I think it's like the advanced Apex one where you actually have to go in and generate a Wizzle and then write an integration in Apex in order to pass the badge. Still, so if you if you want to if you want to get your your Wizzle to Apex skills back on, there's a there's a, a super badge waiting for you. That's that's really a hole I have in my resume right now. Is I'm yeah. lacking the uh, Wizzle to Apex badge. <laughs> Funny enough, I haven't had to deal with that lately, mainly because you handle most of the integrations. But at most most of the things I've been having to interact with have some kind of REST interface, so I don't really have to. I rarely run across. I mean, there's still a lot of soap out there in the enterprise. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, people are just people have either done a really good job of either replacing it with yeah. with REST or just working around it or having like side by side. You know, yeah, we still have this. You know, because there's just so many big enterprise products that just are still you know have a lot of soap in them. Yeah, 
I just I still just prefer REST, especially for those guys that are getting whistles off of .NET code, because inevitably they'll put in some dependency on some internal system IO thing, and I have to deal with that and modify the the whistle just to get it to generate yeah. correctly. Okay, uh, let's see. What about um, uh, one thing that I was really interested in when they announced it was this DevOps Center. Was there any news about DevOps Center? Uh, not that I've heard of within the stuff that the the dev team were working on because I I stayed quite silo within sort of our developer channel that we were working on and so I'm not sure if any of that that came forward on there. We actually um, at our company we kind of suspended or I won't say suspended but we're we're really anxious to to learn more about DevOps Center to incorporate it into what we do for our clients. Um, when kind of when when you work with lots of different organizations, you know you. It's tough to go to all of them and say, well, you've all got to, you know, sign up for this Salesforce build service thing, right? It'd be yeah. great if, again, it was just part of what they get from Salesforce and maybe there's some incremental consumption-based billing for it or whatever. Um, or maybe it's, you know, it's, uh, additional like, add-on you can get. But, you know, just, again, having it through Salesforce and something that we can just also easily make part of the, like, new deals, you know, just yeah. and make sure the AE tax on the the, uh, the yeah. DevOps Center or whatever, but man, that's it's a lot of promise there. I mean, we really need something like that. I mean, as you as you say that, um, it, it reminds me of back when I was running a partner, like one of the one things that we would do is we would take one of their sandboxes and install Agile Accelerator, the package, into the org. And we would manage all of our work items and process in Agile Accelerator just so that we could hand it over to the customer at the end of the project. Mm. And while there may have been better things to use, like obviously we could have used Jira or something, being able to take a package in Salesforce, get the teams internally working with us in Salesforce, it'd get them to understand how Salesforce worked a little bit better, as well as allow us to hand all that over. So that if, if we could then hand over all of the change and deployment as well, I mean, in the same type of package, it's it's can make a big difference. Yes. When you say that'd be a huge It would be. And I'm, I, a lot of it was... So I did two paths on that research is one, what is DevOps looking like and what is it potentially they're going to do? And what would it look like if I just home grew it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think they're, they're facing a lot of the problems that I was facing once I tried to solve that problem, which is, first of all, we don't have full access to the metadata. Yep. So there are a lot of things that aren't in there. Um, change tracking works, but it's kind of weird when it comes to other packages. So if you're modifying... Uh, namespaced fields of another package that doesn't always come over in source unless you explicitly define it. And then even then deploying it gets kind of tricky. And then the final nail in the coffin, which was, I don't, almost impossible was whenever the releases came out and you had sandboxes in one version and other environments in a different version that affected the actual metadata that was in it, making it incompatible with each other. Well, and the other thing that mm -hmm. I always used to have problems with was third party packages that would push out updates like minor i guess patch releases or whatever and like sandboxes would get them they'd like, push out these changes to sandboxes mm -hmm. and then maybe a, a two weeks later they'd push them out to production but in the intervening time if you tried to take your metadata from your sandbox you know com commit it and then push that to production it would fail because you're in production your third-party packages on or on a lower version well, yeah, but we in that scenario, I would exclude third-party uh, packages in general. The problem is we do, there are certain things like the EDA package that we work with mm -hmm. that's namespaced, 
but we also make modifications, things like pick lists and things like that. And so you have to try to get those back into source control because we made a change. Well, sometimes you can exclude them because you've, you can customize a lot of the stuff in a third party package. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always, I think the, especially when, when doing a lot of greenfield work, like getting that right mix of metadata initially to even move to source, I think is really daunting to a lot of people who aren't used to working from source. Yeah, there's, there's, there's been, as I try to get our team kind of more focused on individual tracking of source elements, it, it's, it's a foreign concept to them for sure. Yeah. I mean, have you ever tried to move a lot of like the service cloud features into source like chatbots and live agent and a lot of that? It's, it's, it, it's a, it's a, a long process. Well, yeah. And then some products, they have a reliance on metadata, but they also have a reliance on physical data, like a yeah. field, what was it? The field service product. Um, that mm-hmm. one has both metadata dependencies, but also data dependencies. And that was really difficult to deploy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, custom metadata types have helped a lot. And, and if I were like, cause I've, I've built app exchange solutions in the past, I've built some stuff for Salesforce labs, like when I can, or when you, I need to make like user editable, like settings and configuration for the package. I try and do everything in custom metadata types now, if possible. And I can think of a million scenarios where I'd go back in time and move things into custom metadata now, just for that, that sole purpose alone. I, ne- I never really fully adopted custom metadata. Oh, I have. I, I still... Just about everything that I need to do is just use, in the uh, metadata. What's the, what was it? Custom settings. Using, I still yeah, use, I know you're using custom yeah, settings. Yeah. On. It just, but for, for what yeah. you're doing, it's fine. It works f- exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's actually a good fit for what I'm doing. Um, yeah. It still has its uses, um, but... Yeah, it's it's you just can't rely on that data during deployments because it's it's not going to. And I don't it. exactly, and I don't want to. I don't right. want it to be in a deployment, yeah. so. which makes yeah. makes its terminal yeah. its its nomenclature the uh, custom settings just make no sense. What what would be a better term for it? Well, I think metadata should be custom settings. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> yeah. that cat's out of the bag on that one. Yeah. Sorry. We- <laughs> I mean, it's there. There, there's so many different ways. I mean, you've custom settings, custom metadata types. Name credentials as well. A lot of people will use. Well, a lot of people still will authenticate and store keys in protected custom settings instead of using like a name credential. Oh yeah, yeah. No, first, I moved away from that a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people don't know about name credentials still. Mm. Which is a shame because it, it because of the hooks into Apex, it's so much easier. Mm. What's the is the main use case for those? Like when you like call outs to external services. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 And you just get variables that you plug into your headers and everything, and you can choose mm. whether or not to enable username headers and all that kind of stuff. And so you, can, you can create like maybe something to store an API token or something and just call it, you know, mm-hmm. John's service token. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. 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 But you, you, you store it alongside the endpoint as well. So you just call, I think it's like name credential, give it, give it a name. And so how, and just, does, how does that, how's that represented in source or is it at all? I mean, cause you obviously don't want the credential itself to be, it's a secret. It's packageable. But you don't want it. You don't. Well, you might want the the idea of John's service API token to be packageable. But w- when you actually go to supply that token, is that something that you do after you deploy? Right, because you don't want that committed into your. You don't want well, any secrets committed into your. Into so your, there's a password field that you would put the token in. So the way it works is there's no really there's really no official token support in the name credentials. What you do is you use the password field to store your token. That's fine. And you just put a dummy value into the username, and okay. then you use that password merge variable 
in your code, and that's how you get the token in there. So it's encrypted. Okay. And when it's packaged, yeah. it's encrypted. Oh, okay. When it's in your okay. namespace package, it's encrypted. Now, if you take that metadata out and it's in your source, you'll see it because it's in the XML. But once it's packaged and you deploy it, it's encrypted. Yeah, yeah I guess, how do you package, how do you, if you're packaging and deploying from source, how do you, I don't know. Does it's it in rattle? your root source, but yeah. when you once it's deployed to a client org, yeah. all they see is the hashed password. I guess what I'm saying is it shouldn't, you, you don't want that in your source. You don't want a password in your source at all. Are you uh, are you testing are you testing your services, your production services in the sandbox? Or are you testing dummy services in the sandbox before you're deploying to production? It's like a, a, another philosophical question. Yeah, you could, right, because you need, you need, yeah, right. I could see, okay, when we're testing, you know, we need to use a test username and password, yeah. but when it's in production, it should be, it should use, you know, a production username and password. Yeah. Yeah. It's being post-deployment. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. in most cases, I would assume that it's, that uh, that's a post-deployment steps is including the production credentials. I would think so. And keys. Yep. It yeah. is, but there are cases like uh, we had an integration with a third-party tool. And we, we would package that token because it was our token global for everything. So we had a single interface to that third-party application where we used their services. So we included the token in the package and relied on encryption to secure that. Now, if, if it ever had to change, we could, of course, go into the to each org and change it. But at least part of the base package, we did include mm -hmm. the token. Yeah. Then you're just... You're, you're hoping that Salesforce has got their uh, cryptography you hey, know, I process down Salesforce. well. I trust Salesforce. They've told me to trust them, so I yeah, trust them. It's their number one value. <laughs> we, that's what we've been told. Uh, I, yeah, I've, I've done that too. Um, like protect, what is it? Protected? Um, protected custom settings? Yeah. So. Yeah, when do I use? I use protected custom settings a lot when I'm like storing encryption keys and tokens. Yeah. So obviously if, you, if you're using any of the crypto library stuff in Apex, you need to store it somewhere to get it. And I usually mm -hmm. will put that in a custom setting because it's not, it's not in related to a call out whatsoever. So, yeah. Well, what else, uh, what, what's the other big news this week? Anything else we need to cover? Let's see. What did I have? Oh, they, they mentioned, they teased that they would give, um, update on kind of like what the Einstein analytics versus Tableau story is. Did they, did we get any news on that? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I think that was on, on, the first day that there was a lot of analytics type uh, stuff going on, but I've, I haven't been hooked into that world for quite a bit now. Okay. Uh, they also, yeah. I mean, this article was this Sockwell builder, which yeah. is, I guess is some yeah, gooey thing. To, studio. Yeah. 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 yeah this okay. new extension is pretty cool. Um, it's, it, it's exactly what you'd think it would be coming over from using something like workbench and building queries in workbench. It's just an extension of VS code. It's pretty cool. It's handy if you don't know what is already there. I, I'm I'm sort of I'm pedantic in that I can I can generally know what I'm going to be looking for, and so I I can, I can memorize the field names, I guess, over over time. And see, I'm I'm not good at memorizing field names, but I do like, for example, like the way IC does it, where you yeah. when you're, it's it just auto completes. So if you need, yeah, the IntelliSense you, is yeah. is unreal. Yeah, yeah, I do appreciate it for. For a lot yeah. of different things. Well, that that reminds me of the um, the Sockwell fields. Did I say IntelliJ uh, or Illuminated Cloud? Yeah, I can't remember. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Illuminated right. Cloud. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah, and then obviously all the live templates. You can you can you can write a select star in Illuminated Cloud, and it will just populate all the fields for you. I'm I am caught doing that quite a bit. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the Sockwell fields thing. I think that. I think when I first yeah. heard about it, I thought it was a, well, it, it kind of is a select all type function, but it's not. It what allows is you to kind fields? of. It, 
maybe Stefan can so, so describe uh, it better than talked me. To, so announced and talked about yesterday okay. in the, the dev Q&A is the ability to pass a set of fields into your Sockle query mm. that you can define outside of the query. So think you're binding variables in your where clause, but for the select fields. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is really big for me because I'm doing so much dynamic stuff these days. And 90% of it centers around just being able to dynamically select the fields that I need in the query. The, uh, the, the poorly trained security team reviewers, uh, app, app review people are going to have a, a heyday with that. <laughs> More variability in your SQL statements. <laughs> I mean, but think about like, uh, if you, if you're doing a lot of managed package stuff, just like trying to query for anything person account related and oh, you're having to write dynamic SQL yeah. everywhere. So mm -hmm. I, I've got, I have this pattern where, okay, here's my, my query is a string that has some person account fields in it. I'm then going to check the map to see if this field exists and if it exists, add it to a property yeah. and then use it. Yeah. And so if I can like check whether or not person accounts is enabled before I'm actually writing out the query and then dynamically pick the fields to throw into the query, I mean, it's, it'll save a lot of time when it comes to like that, that type of like checking boilerplate. Yeah. Hey, how's that feature working out that I feel like it's, it was released a while back where you could, um, was it called strip strip insecure fields or strip oh, inaccessible? Yeah, stri stri yeah, strip inaccessible. Is that yeah. is that in the wild now? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Every every package now um, that I've written since that was available, mm -hmm. um, every query is with security enforced. Mm -hmm. If if the class is with sharing, if if you're doing a lot of community work, obviously the a lot of the advice is now to write stuff without sharing. Yeah. Um, for guest users and stuff, yeah. but um, and then strip inaccessible, and then perform my DML. Uh, instead of writing all of these manual checkers to see if the fields are accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't done any package. I will be using it because I'll be revamping a lot of our package work. But yeah. at the time that I was working on the ISV product, um, I had to write my own because it just wasn't available yet. Yeah. But I was drooling at the mouth for it because yeah. that was a lot of work. Right. I mean, with security enforced is brilliant. I just yeah. tack it onto the end of your queries and it's only returns what you actually yeah. have. Yeah, that, we should make that distinction because the strip inaccessible is mainly yeah. something you'll use with dynamic SQL. If you're just yeah. using the inline SQL, you're fine. You just you have the keywords and you can do it like normal and it handles the yeah. security for you. It's just that dynamic part where you're writing SQL strings and passing that that you need to add that extra layer. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That's still, that's still a very confusing thing for me. Yeah. So, so the strip inaccessible, it's so you've got a set of records. Say you want to insert some records. You then will say, uh, is it is it creatable, or do they have access to create, or strip any inaccessible fields, and then it will go through and push this in through before the DML transaction. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, things like Visual Force and, I guess, Lightning components, you know, they'll, in terms of, at the view layer, like, you get automatically, automatic filtering of, of fields that a user doesn't have access to, which has always worked pretty well, I think. That's pretty great. But the problem is when you're doing things like triggers, right, which it's in a use it's in a user initiated transaction but your but but triggers operate in system mode yeah. and if you're doing something where you're querying let's say you're you know you're you're, op, you're doing a query and you know you're and then you're you're processing the the results and building some string or something and then you show it back to the user well because you are because in apex you did stuff with the results of that and you built a string and sent it back like there's nothing, there's, you know, there's no visual force there to, it doesn't know, you know, you can't filter out what you've done. Whereas with, if you did strip and accessible, 
and then built yeah. your string, you know, you're, you should be safe. Yeah, I think the, the better example is lightning components because, like you said, Visual Force does that for you if you're using a standard controller, but web components, you're just getting a stream of data. So you don't know what they have access to or not. I mean, you do, but you have to do a bunch of code. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm... Unless you're using the data services, but a lot of times you're writing a custom component and you're aggregating data from all, multiple different sources. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I need to, I need to read more on that. And I also, I had actually never even heard of the, um, what was it enforced? What was like the other one? Not stripping accessible, but. Oh, uh, with security enforced. With security yeah. enforced. Yeah. Super handy. So how does that intersect with, with sharing and without sharing and whatever the third one is that they created? So if you're, um, no matter the context you're in, the with security enforced will return based on the user context who has, who's initiated the transaction. Oh. And that, is that a. Is that like a record? Does that operate like the record level? Like if you do a query and let's say you're on a private sharing model, um, does it does it filter out records that the user doesn't have access to, or is this a field level thing? It's a good question. Do you know? I don't. I don't I think know specifically. It's a field level specific. As from what yeah. I remember, I think it was field level specific. Because sharing rules and all that would still apply regardless. Okay. Um. Oh wait, no, wait a minute. Yeah, I think it's still field level, but uh, don't quote yeah, me on that. Because the sharing should be inherent by default if you're in a with sharing. Yeah. If you're in with sharing context, mm -hmm. then it should return only the records that you have access to. Anyways, if you're in without sharing, it will. My assumption is it will return everything. It will just strip out the fields that 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 user doesn't have access to. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I'd, I it had come out after I needed it, so I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't really put a lot of it to use. But I was watching it like crazy because I had a lot of custom code that was written. Around I mean, just if you're looking, doing that. If you're looking to just pass security review and make sure all that all of your queries are safe, literally just tack with security enforced onto the end of every SQL query. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Um, one of the um, Dream TX things, and it was announced a couple of weeks beforehand that I I think is pretty cool. Is I don't know if either of you have heard of the style hooks for the oh, base yeah. components. I've been. I actually before they were announced, I noticed that in the documentation. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. And the, what and, is, what and are style hooks? They're beta. Yeah. What are they? So it's a mechanism so that you can override the native styling. So instead of, well, you really can't in a lot of cases because of the way it's the way that CSS is sandboxed. You can't really reach into a Salesforce component and change the styling. Yeah. I mean, in certain cases you can by doing it important, but sometimes it's embedded so deep you're out of the you're out of the yeah. namespace. Yep. So you you can't override it. So the hooks give you a way to kind of override that and change the styling for all the classes that they know of. Hmm. Yeah, for, and it's just a number of base components that are available at the moment. But I can see it expanding quite far. A big one is uh, like, and, and I had it as part of one of the LWC demos I did for Dream TX was just changing button colors to align with brands, mm -hmm. like your SLDS. Um, variant brand like doesn't change from that Salesforce blue even if all of your themes have changed throughout your entire org or your community. Well, sorry, your community colors are reflected in, in button changes and things like that, but there, there are issues or in places where you want the card maybe to have a different shape. You don't want it to have the same shadow variant. You don't want it to have like the same radius uh, where you can just reach in and then modify those default styles in the parent. So you, so you in the host of the parent that contains the base component, you can then just specify some overrides. Yeah. Which is huge for communities. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly where I want to use them. Um, I mean, you have you have tokens for kind of defining some of that, but then you have to go in and override some of them. And I find the tooling for setting up the theme and the colors really inadequate, and it's it's almost like a crapshoot on what's going to take the styling and what's not. Mm. So a lot of times, I'll I'll just go and use the build your own theme and create my own, yeah. which sucks that I have to create an org component to represent the layout theme. And then put my components into that. I wish that was all lightning, but I still have to dance well, between Aura and... In, in Pilot, at the moment, you can get access to the lightning web runtime communities. So those the lightning uh, communities. You can go and sign up and spin one up. Oh, cool. There's a setting, a setting and setup that you can do. So, the, the, I mean, the future of that is great as well. The performance improvements are huge on communities on top oh, of that. That'll be welcomed because it's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Salesforce is slow, but you don't want your communities to be slow. <laughs> so what is it called? Lightning Web Runtime Community? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, they talked about it. Um, there's there's a little bit of buzz about it at Jaha DX. Um, you, can, you can get access to them now. Um, I think as of winter that any anyone can turn them on in their orgs as well. Um, and it's just it, it incredibly improved performance. Wow. On top of the Kubernetes Communities product. Now, there aren't uh, available as many standard base components as you have now in themes, but it's it's still in, in its early stages. Yeah, I can't say for what we're doing. We're using too many of the standard components. Yeah, but they could change that, right? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, as yeah. more come out, but it's not like it, that would prevent me from, from moving forward and in, in more into that direction. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There's a new certification. This B 2 C solution architect is that a, is that a uh, commerce cloud thing, or a, uh, sorry, marketing cloud maybe? I think it's I think it's all of the above. Okay. I think it's more so a strategic uh, certification around like if you were this company, what decision would you make here? Yeah. If they needed these types of applications, I'm not. Actually, I I I've I read a blog about it, so I don't. I've not taken the exam, but looking at the breakdown, it wasn't really product focused. What about um, any new Salesforce 360 stuff? Not, not that I'm clued into. I know there's a lot around those customer 360 audiences and and storing data off platform there, but I'm not. I don't know a lot of detail about it, to be honest. Yeah, I still, have, I still don't fully. Understand. Is it customer 360? That's that what it's called? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was called Salesforce. Yeah, I still don't. I don't quite get it. I mean, I, um, it's still in, in my mind. It's just like it, you know, it's a way to federate, you know, entities across the, the different clouds. And so, yeah. John, you know, John Santiago and my sales cloud, maybe you know, I might, you know, you're in my sales cloud, but you might also be in my marketing cloud, right? Well, what's tying those together? That's that's the challenge, I think. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big time. I think a lot of people have issues with with storing people data anyways and duplication all over the place, not only in just Salesforce, but that's a, that's just a, a problem in general in technology. Yeah. So Creating is this, a, is this a, a just perfect identity for someone? Is this just branding around master data or is this an evolution of master data? I don't think um, it's master data. Necessarily. It's more, I think it's more just identity based, not necessarily master data. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's trying to solve the master data problem. I think, I think it's actually, I think it's an acknowledgement that master data is just something you're not going to get to. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm serious. I'm, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. You know, I've I've seen a lot of master data initiatives, and the the reality is, is it, you know, different systems are going to have different, um, you know, schemas and structures and things, and 
which is which is a problem. But if you can just solve the identity problem, that is yeah. huge. Yeah, I think a lot of it is built around this um, this sim, this cloud informational model. Oh, yeah. I think it is yeah. called. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just us. It's us. It's Google, Amazon. I mean, every large tech company is is putting a lot of effort and focus into this this sim. I think a lot of the principles behind the, the customer 360 stuff is this cloud information model and creating a standardized way of managing that person when you have their data. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I just Googled it, and the first thing that Google says is customer 360 practice has been around for years under various guises. In most cases, it means aggregating customer data from different applications cleansing it and analyzing it to get a reasonable picture of customer contact information and some preferences. See, I didn't think that's what it was, but here's another thing that Google shows me. It's a tool that allows companies to connect Salesforce apps and create a unique customer ID to build a single view of the customer. That nothing yeah. is more accurate. But yeah, I yeah. want to say there were some sessions earlier in the week around this and sort of where it's going. Yeah. In fact, this is, that's something I should drill down in and figure out since I yeah, do it's, a lot of um, integration stuff. <laughs> uh, cus- customer 360 audiences. So they added the word that, audiences that to it. Okay. Audiences. That's one of those overloaded terms, isn't it? Or is it not? Okay. Yeah. There's audiences everywhere. Oh, it's part of the CDP, too. Uh, that's another thing that I, I, I you know, I've... I've tried to understand what exactly a CDP is, and it's it's I never I never feel like I contact quite, data points. No, cu- customer data. It's it comes out of the marketing world. I don't know yeah. who invented that term, but I don't know. It's not. It's, it's almost like CRM for marketing or something. I don't hmm. know, but it's definitely big in the marketing space. Uh, anyway, all right. Well, I was I was kind of curious about, uh, and I don't know if you have any insight on this, but the documentation for Salesforce. So I know that the release notes got consolidated into the. I guess what's now the help stuff, right? And I've heard some others in the community kind of talk about how they're disappointed that the documentation is just everywhere and it's just, it's not consistent. Hmm. Yeah, there's, um, there's, there's work going on currently to improve that experience. That's all that I can say. <laughs> well, it's good. It's good to know that something's going yeah. on in that direction. I mean, I get it. I mean, you have different groups that are responsible for certain parts of the application and they're, they're obviously trying to produce the, documentation that best best fits it but at the same time when you're trying to use all those tools and and try to get get all the information you're kind of being jumped around to a lot of different places yeah big time yeah there's no there's no single place for a lot of that information currently especially now that we have all all these different products like you have the developer center for commerce cloud for b2b commerce cloud you have a different developer center for b2c commerce cloud you've got all of our core developer docs um everything's pretty desperately sort of placed around the internet at the moment yeah i didn't hear any big changes to the cli though other than the breakout into the, all the new namespaces and things yeah i think the namespace stuff is is, is going to be uh i mean it's going to save us a couple of characters every time we're typing in a command but yeah. i find myself uh, I've, I've been working in vs code a lot more than i was before and having the, the extensions and plugins to just quickly get to the cli commands in the command palette has been pretty helpful. But if you are still typing them in, it's, you get a, a couple a couple less namespaces in the chain. Um, also, but to, to reference the all of the, the syntax in the CLI, obviously that's a Heroku invention as well with Oatliff. 
Mm-hmm. And so you have your colons between everything. And just another, another example of something that's been built off of that, that Heroku acquisition many years ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy for it to, for it to get a little less wordy. Yeah. yeah. That, that, this, the aesthetics of, of all those colon separated namespaces. I don't know. I mean, you know, well, it gets I'm, pretty I, long. What's, what's the longest yeah. one that I've been using? Uh, I think it's like the data one, the data tree one. Cause that I have to do. Was it force data tree import export, and then you have all your commands after that? But how much? How great is it that we can actually do that now? Oh, it's super great! That is awesome. I've, yeah. I've, yeah. I have this like hierarchy of of dynamic rules that have to get written, and it's data. Mm-hmm. Do, you, and, do you use any of the data the data plan stuff? So creating a data plan, you know, for migrating data. I'm so appreciative of the tree import export that I struggle with complaining about it. But my big complaint is I couldn't use it because I ran afoul of the 200 record limit. And it's not 200 records of the initial object. It's to- it's in totality. So if I have one record with 200 child records, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't use okay. data plan. Yeah. So I had to break it up okay. into batches and import the batches. So, was... so on, on that note, then... Have you have either of you checked out the composite API and all the new graph stuff that you can do with it? I know this was this is like TDX announcement type stuff, but now that it's out there in the wild, have either of you had a chance to check it out? Well, I, I guess I'm not sure what part of it's new because they've had a um, composite, yes, yeah, yeah. but okay. it's the 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 graph now, so you can define a graph with up to 500 transactions in a single payload, and so now you can you can shoot 500 records into Salesforce in a single transaction against the API related or not, because obviously in the graph, you can build the relationships between the records. Mm-hmm. And so you can now push it all through in that single payload instead of having to have one hierarchical relationship within a single composite request. So the, the rest API has always had this thing called composite tree, I think. And mm-hmm. it sounds like, I don't know if it's this, this new thing is, separate from that or if it's see i think it's, it is it, it's a it's a resource on the on the composite if, if, I, I think if that's what you're talking about but th- but that's been there for quite a while but it, it has a limit of 200 total records across all trees i don't know if this is i feel like this is a different api though that you're talking about you know, composite uh, graph it is it's a it's different than yeah, tree yeah it is yeah so i guess i don't understand the difference in the tree and the graph um not to look into that but yeah i've um well, I always oh, thought yeah, the yeah, graph totally. was to conform with the GraphQL standard. No, this is not GraphQL. No, it's, it's not. not? Yeah, okay. Yeah. That, was, that was brought up yesterday as well in one of the sessions, the differences between GraphQL and, and, and a Graph API. Okay. Um, although it was hinted in the Lightning Web Components session um, that they are investigating currently GraphQL capabilities from Lightning Web Components, which I think could be quite interesting as well going forward and actually being able to create those definitions and and get a more defined tree instead of having to create it yourself in apex yeah i've i've had thoughts like that before but i wonder if that's the wrong place for it because i i i really struggle with when i see components that know way too much about the the database yeah to where it's defining the query and that just was always so dangerous yeah yeah, man, I, I, I'll tell you what, though, when you're when you're pulling when you need to pull, you know, a, essentially a graph of data uh, over the Internet from like a web browser. I mean, being able to submit that all in one request and getting the entire answer back in one request is huge for performance. I agree with yeah. that part. But I mean, it's it's a matter of does the JavaScript write the GraphQL and know everything about the database it needs to know? Or does it call a method on the server or on an API that 
fails that graph and returns it. That, that this would be a great question and conversation to have with the PM as they start to build this out, because that's 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 the type of advice that we need as we start to move towards some of these more, uh, I guess, forward-thinking technologies and and build them out. Yeah, the thing is, I mean, even even when you're just dealing with a um, a simple a backend, gra GraphQL is fairly challenging to implement on the server side. I can't imagine implementing it at Salesforce's scale. You know, when you just take into account the really complex security model and everything. I mean, that's that's a big lift, I think, to implement GraphQL. I've always wondered if they would do it, but because uh, it's, it's gotten kind of popular. Although I yeah. will say, I feel like it, by this point, we've, we've already entered the trough of disillusionment of GraphQL. Um, mm. I've heard many stories of teams that went down the path for a couple of years, but then have actually started rolling back a little bit just because of some of the challenges. And I don't know, yeah. you know, I'm not saying GraphQL is not a good technology. I, I, again, I think from a um, writing a client perspective, it really can simplify a lot of things and increase performance a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you think about how Salesforce has changed into like requiring front end web dev skills, like as a core need for a good Salesforce developer now, like mm -hmm. we need you to understand and have a quite a pretty proficient grasp on JavaScript in order to be writing applications here yep. for like today because our, our users are so used to having everything on the internet be slick really easy to use like we need to be able to mimic that into now salesforce yep yeah well, that's why you know as much as you know you've got the, the these low code tools which you know it seems salesforce seems to be you know almost the poster child of, of these low code tools they've, they've actually because you know we've been promised these things for decades really and Salesforce is really, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure there's counterexamples, but I mean, to me, they're really the first big success story for, for low code, um, which, which I think is great, uh, allowing, you know, people who aren't necessarily, you know, computer science degree holders to be able to, you know, build, build software is, is awesome. But at the same time, just the amount of work and the use cases for, for, you know, people who do write a lot of code keeps going up. Yeah. It's just like, there's. Yeah, I don't know, it's, it's interesting how that. Well, even the even the competency for an admin is changing with with flow in general. I, I hear, mean, I hear flow, admins complaining about that actually. How it's it's, it's basically yeah. <laughs> it's like you, they're having to up their game, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's programming. It really At the end is. Of the day, it's programming, and if you take some of these people who are really proficient with flow, like the second that coding clicks to them, they are going to be excellent programmers. Yeah because of the fact that they can work within incredibly tight limits currently mm -hmm. with, with clicks as they start to expand, I think we're going to see sort of like a new wave of Salesforce developer in the future. But I mean, people love to bash on flow, but I w will never write a wizard from scratch again because I can use flow to just put anything that I want to any components. I can write hooks into apex. I can write endpoints into flow and just piece it all together really quickly from a, a screen flow perspective. And I think that's really like even the the Dream TX stuff I was doing, my initial thought was okay, I can I can call functions from a flow, I can call functions from Lightning Web Components. I'm gonna create some wizards because that's what companies have is wizards yeah. everywhere. And so it's it's that is the most realistic experience. It's it's what clients want. It's, I was gonna say, it's, I it's knew, not I, what they yeah. need. It's, I knew, this yeah. is a bad no, story. <laughs> okay, but, good point. I, I knew John was getting triggered by this. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I also. <laughs> I, I think in some, I'm, well, the problem is that wizards just for the past three, three decades have been so overused. Um, 
Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's often the best. You know, the best. Well, I think it's, it's lazy because it assumes that you need to hold the user's hand step by step across this, this mechanism. Well, sometimes you do. Yeah. Well, but not always. Sometimes it's just like, God, would you just let me edit the damn thing instead of, you know, making me click through seven I, next buttons? I am big on user experience. I am big about watching and learning from users, whether it's anecdotal or not. And users can be really proficient with, with, with just about any tool if they're using it day in and day out. They just need the training. Yeah. Well, but uh, to con- constrain them even more, if you like. Okay. <laughs> um, so, oh, he likes it. The U- so the UK government. Um, they have this this branch called GDS, which is Government Digital Services. Oh, they can't okay. do that. That's, that's trademarked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so GDS, as they are known, um, have designed patterns for everything and for building out services for the government. And so when you're building an app where you're filling out your car registration or you're changing your address, or you're doing this, you're doing that. Anything that goes into the government has to go through incredibly strict design reviews and assessments at the design stage, at alpha, uh, public, private beta, public beta, and then before it's live. There's a, an assessment that it goes through at each phase. And one of their key rules is one field per page. Oh, God. In order for a service to be suitable for a majority of the citizens of the UK, it's one field per page. And at the end, now to, to spare you at the end, you get a readout of all of your fields and you can go through and edit well, in nice. different sections. But it's, it, the rule is one field per page because that's what they have found that the majority of people respond to. Wow. wow. So, one, so you have the first name page and then the second yeah. last name page and... Email address page. Well, I think I, they're okay. <laughs> you you get some field groupings there. Oh wow! But I mean, like first and last name. Yeah. Not first and last name and email address. That'd okay. be too much. Yeah. You gotta have one field per page, and you can go and look at all of the the design guidelines they have online. It's crazy. Um, well, have you ever filled out um, what is it? Healthcare.gov. Have you ever applied for uh, health plan on there? I think it's like that. I, I did it a couple of years ago, and it's basically. Leave it to the government to find a way to turn your DMV experience into your online experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's insane. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I moved to Nevada in March, really full time. And obviously because of COVID, like I, my car's up for, for renewal right now. Um, and so I've got to pay my registration fees. However, I've since moved from the house that I bought the car while I was living in, mm-hmm. and I cannot find a way to change my address <laughs> and register my car. <laughs> no. I can go to a kiosk and register my car, but not change my address. I can change it online, or I can pay my registration fee online, and they'll send the tags to my old address, and then I can figure out like who lives there now and go and pick them up from them or something. But there's no way... Besides going in person to actually change my address. Yeah. No, no one oh, sorry, about sorry. <laughs> Wait, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm lying. I can change my address, but I have to log in using my Nevada's driver's license, yeah. which I do not have because <laughs> of the pandemic. And I still have a California driver's license. Yeah. And so there's, there's no way currently for me to change my address and register my car. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm probably going to be driving a car without, without valid tags for a couple of months because the next appointment's in June. Mm. That's a while. Yeah. Yeah, but it's yeah government government services a, eh? but one one field per page is is the rule there, and 
people like you you question whether or not people need to be handheld and guided through surfaces i think that they do maybe so i mean i, I think know. i think having proper ui that guides them to the things that they want to do to be able to do that's that's definitely valid but then holding their hand and making them walk through a screen by screen i mean you talk about efficiency and productivity of users and you're essentially taking an operation that they could get proficient at and handle if it was all on one screen and get it done within a minute and then keep building on that and becoming more efficient to now it's a fixed time frame to complete a task because you're going through screen by screen well okay let me ask you this then do you like to conditionally hide and show fields on a form I prefer not to. I subscribe to the kind of the human experience. Who, who wrote that book? The human experience where he, he, he talked about how modes are bad for people and or they're just bad for understanding because things pop and disappear and it's inconsistent. Um, it was one of the Apple guys, one of the yes, Apple programmer guys. Um, Jeff Raskin. Yeah. Yeah. Now I don't subscribe to everything he said because yeah. there were some things I disagreed with on, but I do agree with the fact that modes and turning things off and on, it sounds nice, but it, it's not. No, they're, it's like mentally jarring. Yeah. It's confusing, yeah. 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 I, I guess what's, what's, what, what I like about sort of wizard type functionality is, is you're able to show someone what they need to see and allow them only to have to consume that specific bit of information before they then can proceed instead of just flying through the, an application or something and maybe missing a field. Or, or Jeremy knows that every time he's on this form, he's got to skip this field and it's just not, it's just not needed. Like imagine having to go and press new and create a new record every time you needed to create a new record instead of it just going through some steps and happening, I guess. Maybe that's my, my view of the world. Um, I don't want to be looking at a form every time I need to do something. Yeah, I think it, I think it also is, you know, how many times, how often is the person going to be doing this? If it's like something where you're applying for healthcare and you're doing it, you know, once every three or four years, that's one thing. But if it's like, imagine if every time you wanted to create a contact in Salesforce, you had to go through a wizard that... Uh, collected a couple of one or two fields each on each screen. I mean, I, you know, th that wouldn't work for a typical Salesforce user because they know how to create contacts and they just, yeah. just give me the screen. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I don't mean to, yeah. to say that all wizards are bad. I, I just think in general, they get overused and they get used for the wrong reasons. They get used totally. as a way because they don't trust the users. They don't give them enough credit. Are you and a good I, wizard or a bad wizard? Yeah. I, <laughs> I prefer giving users more credit. I know it's dangerous, but I prefer to trust users probably more than people would like. John's a very trusting guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, any final thoughts on uh, this all new reimagined Dreamforce Dream TX? No, I don't like it. You don't? Okay. No. Well, sorry, John. You, you, but you know, you were, you, you were prejudiced about this to begin with. It, it, it played out the way I thought it would. <laughs> of course. <laughs> It, it turned into basically Apple marketing. You know, they, uh, Apple did this, it, you know, you have all these nice and they're, they're nice. Yeah. They got nice music and they got nice camera and nice lighting. A lot of people dancing, but it's just a bunch of commercials and yeah. there's really, no, it's really hard to find something redeeming about them. Well, the silver lining is we now have that gif of Benioff coming out of the woods, out of the peeking, peeking from behind oh, the trees. <laughs> I've been wanting to comment on that because I want to so say, good. I want to say it was squatchy. That's what I want to say. <laughs> squatchy. Squatchy. What's that? Well, if you've never seen the show, you won't know what Squatchy oh, is, no, but no. Okay. for those who have seen the show, they know what Squatchy is. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Nope. Do you know, it's, I, I, I think the world is on like digital media overload at the moment. Yeah. Like yes. 
I I moved to Vegas and I was like, oh my God, I can go to reInvent this year, not have to pay for a hotel. Mm. I'm going to buy a ticket and I'm going to go. And then this year, reInvent's digital. I didn't watch a single session. Yeah. I have no idea what happened because I, I just, I mean, I'm in overload personally at the moment. Yeah. Like I'll, I will one day stumble upon some stuff on YouTube that happened, but I think people are, are a bit zoned out, especially we're, we're leading up to Christmas. It's hard to consume content right now. Actually, I think that was the thing for me is it's that I'm at a point right now where I'm trying to wrap things up towards the end of the year so I can actually take a couple yeah. of days off and it just, it's hard to squeeze in conference time the week before Christmas. I mean, we're, well, plus what are you're we? not, where this is, it's seven days till Christmas right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you think about your Dreamforce experience, usually you would, you're, you're either going and you have that time off and yeah. you're dedicating it to that. Mm -hmm. But now because it's these snippets or whatever, you kind of picking and choosing what you're going to pop in and out of. So even if you do go and watch a session, you're maybe captive for 30 minutes and then you're back to work or something that takes your mind off of it. So you have no chance to absorb it. You have no chance to talk to someone about what you just saw and what it, what it means. It's, you kind of lose out on the whole proper experience. Well, it, just the, from a content creation perspective and like creating content for this and for all of these virtual things, like it's, it's so different than getting on stage and speaking at a conference. Yeah. If I'm at a conference, I'm totally happy to be off the cuff, to be non-scripted, to like improvise as much as possible. Whereas when something's being recorded you know that it's being scrutinized to a totally different level mm -hmm. than it would be if you were on stage speaking and you had the talk recorded. And so you're under pressure to not say the wrong thing. You'll notice a lot of things seemed a bit more scripted as well. And that's because like, for my example, I had a, a, note a notepad and paper here saying, don't forget to say this. Don't forget to say this. Oh no, we, um, people were tracking your eyes. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. My, my eyes were, were tracking. So they they bad noticed when you were, you were, you were looking at um, the teleprompter. <laughs> yeah. And because it's, it's like it's there's so much more pressure, I think, against recording a session like that versus actually just going and saying it. Yeah. It's a different skill. I've noticed that even talking on this podcast as comfortable as, as I've gotten with this, put me in front of a camera and I will stumble across my words a hundred times over. Yeah. It's just a different skill. Yeah. I mean, like, so say, so say I'm doing this functions demo here. Okay. If I'm looking at my code, I can walk you through exactly what I'm doing. But if I'm staring at the camera and having to think about what my code looks like as I'm talking about it and walking through it, it's so difficult. And so I, I can't wait to get back on a stage versus recording everything for, for conferences like this. Yeah. Personally, I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think, I think so too. Plus, I mean, the, the valuable thing about going to a session is not the session itself, but usually getting to talk to you guys after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. There was, they did, um, just like we did for TDX, there was like the demo booth for a dream checks where you can go in and watch the demos. The demos obviously were pre-recorded by the PMs, but right when the demo finished, you then were live with that PM or with that person representing the product. And you could have a live Q and a, I saw someone in the, um, in the Slack channel was, posting all kinds of comments from the functions PM and the things that they said during the Q and a, because you actually did get that time to talk to the PMs for a few minutes after the sessions, yeah. which I think, I think that that is something that would be great going forward. But I think when it comes to actual content, like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know if it was, if it was spot on, 
But if anyone has feedback, please send it to me. I know Peter, who's also in the Slack channel, Peter Chittam, is collecting feedback around the sessions and what they thought of the event format, what they'd like to see in the future, so that we can make sure that we're providing people with the content that they need and want to see. Like, I don't know if either of you have seen, I think you mentioned briefly the the like quick YouTube videos we've been focusing on. So like, here's five to 10 minutes, here's a feature, quickly watch it, get it over with, good content with us. It's not scripted and try and learn something quickly. And I think that we've been leaning towards that more off the cuff content. Yeah, I think those are great. I think, I think that's a big contrast between, because they're both short snippets of, vid, of content, but the difference is that you guys are showing actual code and you're, yeah. you're, you're essentially off the cuff, which makes, it feel, feel, which makes me feel more engaged. The other thing, I feel like I'm just watching a long commercial. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's, you know, they're, they're, tr you know, trying these things out, figuring out what works, get, you know, getting feedback. And then, you know, cause if we, uh, you know, yeah, I think you know, hopefully with, uh, with the, 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 I guess the new vaccines that are, that are coming out now that, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll get back to something normal, but a lot of people are, are saying that, you know, it's never going to go, things aren't going to be a 100% back to normal in terms of, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that just remain, you know, remote workers and maybe maybe conferences go back to like, you know, in-person uh, remote hybrid type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty cool that how quickly companies have adapted. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, to, and to, to kind of be positive, I think the the chat definitely was better at this time around. The monitor, oh, yeah, moderators were, were so. excellent. Yeah. And again, that came out of, a, of just learning from from TDX, right? They yeah. did learn that. Because I can actually see valuable comments and when the moderator posted links that that were relevant to the conversation i could actually get to those links i wasn't trying to yeah. scroll through a bunch of linkedin profiles yeah. <laughs> it was really easy to engage with the chat yeah. i found myself answering questions most of the day chatting to people there was someone that called out my eye tracking but then they said <laughs> well at least we have actual developers speaking instead of presenters and professional yeah. professional yeah. speakers and presenters right. that's just what you're going to get varying qualities of tech some people recording their videos from their phones wired apple headsets like you're going to get the quality the, the the quality will suffer when you start moving towards getting everyone contributing to this content and not just the people who are like machines built to present content yeah, like this yeah. yeah i mean it just you know it's a trade-off it's like what do you, do you value like the authenticity of someone's you know developer skills or do you want someone who is you know super polished and they're a professional presenter, right? It's like, what? I think it's the audience. For? I mean, I, I, think, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I think, I I think mean, from so a developer's perspective, we appreciate the, the more off the cuff, honest kind oh, of. I think developers are very sensitive to authenticity. Yeah. And they, yeah. I mean, so, so here's something interesting. How much do either of you know about Trailhead Live? Does mm. it mean anything to you? No, no. Okay. So, so Trailhead Live is a part of Trailhead. If you go to Trailhead and then click on live, Every day of the week, Monday to Friday, there are live streaming sessions from Salesforce, almost like your Twitch of content. Oh, yeah. I've, and, I've watched a couple of those. Yeah. And yeah. So, so every Thursday is developer day. And so we have live hour long talks being streamed every Thursday. And all of our team try and do one or two a month. Like, for example, uh, I know you've had Kevin on the podcast a long time ago, Kevin Portman, yep. mm -hmm. who does a lot of the Apex stuff. Every Thursday, and I think it's like noon, he does a one-hour live coding on Salesforce as he's been building this Apex Recipes app. 
and going through all the challenges and just off the cuff, like we did one a couple of days ago around uh, grids in SLDS and how to use grid on local dev server. Mm. And so we, we spend this time doing this all the time. And so there's a web series going on right now with, with Julian, who's one of the Heroku developer advocates, and Mo, who's on our team, who's, who's super helpful in the Slack channel. And they're going through like modern app development on Salesforce. And they're going through a lot of the architecture of that eCars app every week for an hour, going through a lot of the technical implications of it, how you bring all these components together. Um, and all this content does exist, but I don't think it gets the notice that it can because people have trouble taking that time, that hour a week or two hours a week to go and look at this content as it's being live streamed. It is all put onto YouTube afterwards. Um, I, I have a show on Trailhead Live where every month we've been on hiatus for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, but I'll work with Salesforce Labs app developers from across the company, whether they be in product or different parts of the business and go through their code of this app that they've built and the challenges that they faced while building the app. And all this this stuff does exist, but it's how do you how do you deliver that properly and that content get it to the masses when it becomes a, a norm, I guess. Because everyone knows, oh, it's Dreamforce time, here's Dream TX. There's all gonna be all this content. But in the same sense, every Thursday there's also all this really good yeah. content. Yeah. Well, and Salesforce is such a big company that, you know, you guys are generating just tons of content and the, and the challenge then becomes actually just like organizing it and the discoverability yeah. of it and um yeah. Well, yeah, plus scarcity creates demand, but when there's there's an influx, you, you kind of don't value it as much. Like, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, I can see that. It's on YouTube. I'll, I'll, I'll catch it later, but yeah. you never catch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and so, but, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, since moving to YouTube with the quick take stuff, like, it's gone crazy how popular some of this stuff is. Um, I'm just trying to go and check with the quick takes. Uh the most popular quick take is at 946,000 views. Yeah. And it's three months old. Yeah, so and so the discoverability for is huge. Typical Good Dicer episode, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Around a million, so. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, uh, Kevin has a session on uh, Christmas Eve, in fact, f about okay. dependency injection. So that's. Oh, I got to watch that one. Yeah. Yeah. I've got yeah. Uh, the code life stuff is really cool because it's a, a lot of times it's everyone kind of learning together and going through those challenges. Yeah, that's cool. So that's a good thing to point out. Everyone should check that out. Yeah. Uh, Stefan, is there anything else that you would like to share or point out or leave for the listeners in, in terms of how to how to find you and what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Um, all the uh, DreamTX content will be available on the Dreamforce website. Um, I reckon sometime early next week. Um, as a guess, I don't actually know, but I'm assuming a lot of people have taken today off with the, this week being very long. Uh, and then we obviously have Christmas coming up. Um, I, I'm always sharing lots of content on social media, on Twitter. So if you want to follow me on uh, Stefan WCG, that would be Stefan William Chandler Garcia for anyone curious what that actually means. <laughs> wow, that is um, a name. <laughs> yes, that is. Um, you need that embroidered or, on your robe. <laughs> on your bathroom. I, I might ask, it, um, it might be too late to ask for that for Christmas. Yeah. So we'll see. So. We'll see. Um and if, if you ever have any questions or feedback around anything that we're doing, like we as developer advocates are the interface from the developer community to Salesforce, to product teams, like it's our job, like our customer is every Salesforce developer. Mm -hmm. So if you ever have any issues, problems, you can't get something through questions, just come to us. There's an army of us out there 
and and that's our responsibility. In the same sense, if you have content that you would like to learn more about, let us know because that's where we balance our focus. Like I'm I've I'm trying to work on a lot of community stuff at the moment. So how can we get some more content created around communities? I'm I've been working in pure JavaScript off Salesforce a lot lately. And so I'm trying to create videos about things like custom events and event propagation across the window and things like data attributes, things that we're, will be super useful to developers who are building Lightning Web Components and just help us steer that direction. And, and we, we just need that feedback from the community so that we know where to put our efforts. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and it's it's awesome that there's a lot of a lot of you all out there to uh, to support because there's you know yeah. What are we up to now? Is it six million, eight million Salesforce developers, John? Something like that. That we're in the billions. Oh. But. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's might need some more head That's the next soon. dream. Oh, yeah, that's the next one. Yeah. yeah. All right, Stefan. Well, thanks for joining us, man. This is awesome. It's always it's always good to catch up with you, and hopefully, yeah. uh, before too long, we can do it in person. Yep. Exactly. Need another 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 roundup at some point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, appreciate it. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.